never hints at the quiet, revolutionary nature of empathy and autonomy in empowering young women to keep themselves safe. That's Tina Hasavania of Globe and Mail. That's right, Toronto Paper. Talking about, um, actually Canada's newspaper. Uh, talking about never, rarely, sometimes, always. That's going to be our featured review this week. This was a rave review. It came out 99% Rotten Tomatoes back in mid-March, right before the pandemic hit. I was uh, rushing to the theater to say, okay, what do I watch here? Because I realized movie theaters were about to close. Ended up seeing The Way Back starring Ben Affleck. But this was my other choice, this uh, abortion drama, which got rave reviews at Sundance. It is my feature review without tipping my hands not as odd as the folks at Sundance. Also, finally saw a classic, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? 1967, Spencer Tracy's Sydney puts a Catherine Hepburn classic film about interracial marriage long before uh, it was widely accepted. I guess depending where you are in the country, it isn't even that accepted right now. But back then, it was very taboo back in 67. Finally saw it was on TCM. Uh, we've also, uh, thankfully, contract dispute has been settled. We've got Scott Rogowski back with Rags Time. And how about this guest? Daphne Maxwell-Reed. You're thinking Aunt Viv, right? That's right. She was the second Aunt Viv on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and The Fresh Prince is reuniting HBO Max Thanksgiving weekend, so Daphne Maxwell-Reed is going to join us. She also has a film coming out, The Business of Christmas, which comes out on Netflix on December 1st, and in honor of Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. Great title. Uh, The Mount Rushmore Buddy Road Trip Movies, which is uh, done with an ironic tone. I love the suggestion from Joe because uh, the film is very heavy and serious, as I mentioned off the top, it's an abortion drama. So we'll go in the other direction and say, well, how about some fun movies when it comes to people going on the road together? Uh, as always, thank you for checking us out. Really appreciate the support here for Cinephile. Uh, you just go to Apple Podcasts and you can subscribe, rate, and review. And that's the best way to keep this podcast rolling. As always, you can tweet me as well, um, Adnan Esferk or Cinephile Pod. Thanks to the bad guy 127 and all those who are coming in with uh, comments. Uh, Jason Parolo coming in. Extremely entertaining show. Great content. I love lists. I love the Mount Rushmore segment. I have my director, Mount Rushmore, as Spielberg, Zemeckis, Scorsese, and Burton. Well, you know what, Jason Parolo? You gave us an idea for next week. Done. We'll do our Mount Rushmore favorite directors. How about that? Not even just the greatest directors, because that's too hard to argue. Now, all of a sudden, you're, you're including Hitchcock and Howard Hawks and John Ford and Orson Welles and all the rest of it. We'll do a, we'll do a personal Rushmore. Whoever Joe's favorites are, whoever my favorites are. Done. We'll do that next week. Uh, and thanks to everybody else for the reviews. I also laughed at Doc Lou Iowa, consistent uh, commenter. Is Jason Schwartzman channeling Stanley Tucci or what? He's talking about Fargo. He reminds me of him. I did not know Jason is a Coppola. Look forward to your review. That is true. Jason Schwartzman is actually a Coppola. Um, I've not seen the latest episode of Fargo, but hopefully everybody's dug into the first two episodes. And as far as uh, next week is concerned, Showtime free preview for four days. Very, very crafty. Very crafty by Showtime. Because the good Lord Bird, starring my man Ethan Hawke, premiered this past weekend. So I, of course, recorded the debut episode. I'll review it next week on Cinephile. And if Showtime really hooks me in, well, then damn it, my DirecTV package at $200 is going to have to go up to $210 or $215 because we just got to get some Ethan Hawke in our lives. I'll let you know how that is next week on Cinephile. Abolitionist drama playing John Brown. Uh, looks very, very interesting. Also, I uh, recorded uh, The Comey Rule. Rick Passport was hyping that up. So uh, Brendan Gleeson playing Trump and Jeff Daniels as Comey. Uh, the first two episodes are about three hours and 40 minutes, so I don't know if I'm going to be able to get through all that, but potentially next week on Cinephile. I can tell you this week, though, on Cinephile, what's happening. Again, great title. Never, rarely, sometimes, always. It is about a young woman named Autumn, uh, played by Sydney Flanagan. Excellent performance. She's 17 years old. She lives in a central Pennsylvania town. You can tell her life isn't all that great. 
It starts out with one of these um, school talent shows, and you can tell she's not really feeling the vibe. It's like old school. There's an Elvis impersonator. They're doing something along with Grease. Then afterwards, she's having food with her mom and her stepdad and her sister, and the mom is telling the stepdad, you know, say something nice to her. And she's like, yeah, I thought you were great. You can already tell the stepdad is a deadbeat. Sister says, I thought you did good. But you can tell Autumn, and you see these girls all the time. Maybe you were one of them in high school. Um, you see that, you know, she's kind of surly, a little petulant, quiet, um, not mean-spirited, but just, you know, kind of out of it and clearly doesn't look very happy. And when you see what the stepfather's talking to her, you're like, okay, get a, get a bit of a hint to that. She ends up leaving the bar, throws water in the face of some boy, not really sure what that's all about, and off she goes. Later, she gets a pregnancy test and finds that, yes, indeed, she is pregnant. So this obviously causes quite a conundrum, what to do, because she's in central Pennsylvania where clearly abortion clinics are not readily available. So her cousin, who is very sweet and works with her at the same little... Uh, Looks like a shopper's drug mart, Target, that kind of a spot. They end up going to New York City, and that's the journey. We've got to go. Skylar is the cousin, played by Talia Ryder, who's very sweet. I thought she had a very delicate performance, the way that she supports her cousin. And off to New York City, they go to try to get an abortion. And you see really, you know, in a very subtle ways here, the frustration uh, for young women in this country, especially dealing with this hot-button issue, because it would be very easy to do an abortion drama in which, you know, you're shouting from the mountaintops about the unfairness of it all and just how cruel it is that men are dictating what women can do with their bodies. But this film is much more subtle about that. They just clearly show that, listen, for Autumn, this isn't a situation she wants to be in. She's got to get it resolved, so this is what she has to do. Whatever money they can pool together, they go do it. Hop on a bus, go to New York City, Text your mom, I'm with my cousin, talk to you later. She gets the abortion clinic and she finds out that she's actually much further along than she thought. She went to the first place, they told her she's 11 weeks. Okay, I get it. For those who are uninitiated, 12 weeks or less, uh, generally, depending on who you talk to, abortions are done. At this clinic, they said, no, 18 weeks, we can't sanction that. It's too far along. She's got to go to another place. Go to the other place, like 18 weeks. She's like, oh, that can't be right. I swear I'm 11 weeks. That's what they told me. She's like, well, some of these things can be off. There's like a three or four day off. But 18 weeks is 18 weeks. They still want to have the abortion. She's like, yeah, why? I'm not ready to be a mother. Okay. And you got the best scene of the movie, which is never, rarely, sometimes, always. You have a doctor really subtly asking her some very personal questions, including, you know, have you ever had oral sex, anal sex, vaginal sex? Never, rarely, sometimes, always. Okay, sometimes. Um, do you, with your sexual partner, do you think he has other partners? Never, rarely, sometimes, always. Mm, sometimes. Does this guy ever abuse you, physically or verbally? Never, rarely, sometimes, always. And the movie, I mean, it's all close-ups, especially in this sequence, and they really let the performances breathe. The writer-director is Elisa Hitman, who also did Beach Rats, and she really just focuses in on Sidney Flanagan, who gives an excellent performance, especially in that moment. It's so subtle, it's so contained, because you can tell she's fighting with, dealing with the emotions of whatever trauma and abuse she's dealt with, and also trying to keep her composure together. And as she asks the doctor, you know, why is this relevant? Like, I'm, I'm here for an abortion, what does this stuff matter? And the doctor says, quite plainly, I'm here to make sure that you're safe. You know, we're here to make sure that young women like you are safe, and this is part of the women's fight for emancipation in a very subtle, small way. Uh, she finds that because she's 18 weeks, it's a two-day process. No, I can't be two days. I got to get back as soon as possible. No, you got to do it one day. No, no, sorry. It's two days or nothing. Okay, we'll figure this out. How much money do you have? Well, it's on my uh, insurance. But is there any way my parents can not find out about the insurance? Oh, uh, well, that's another issue. Okay, we're going to have to figure that out. Like, you, you, you can really see, it's really smart how they set up all these different battles. Like, it's a very serious issue when you're trying to do this by yourself. Uh, and you're 17 years old, and obviously you can't tell your parents, what are they going to say about this? So it's very, very scary the way that it's all done. And it's just two women talking in an office, and it's very understated, and it's a little bit gritty with the visuals, and away we go. 
And they realize they need some money. On the bus that they were coming, they got this loser played by Theodore Pellerin, who's one of these guys who's hitting on these two girls. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm in a band. I'm going to New York. Let me get your number. I'll text you when I come to see my band. <laughs> and the cousin, who's, you know, a little cuter, clearly the guy's hitting on her, Talia Ryder. She's like, yeah, I can't this guy keeps texting me. And the main character, Autumn, is like, whatever, just ignore him. But now, of course, they need the money and they got to stay the night somewhere. So, boom, they hit up this guy. And he's terrific in the performance because you can tell he's just a total pig. I mean, he takes them bowling and he's just like staring at Skylar and it's like, Obviously, he has no idea that the other cousin is going to get an abortion, but you clearly know what he's all about. And so when Skylar asked for a little bit of money, he's like, yeah, sure, no problem. Why don't you come downtown with me? I'm like, are you kidding? Like, this, this is the move? Hey, let's go downtown, fool around, then I'll give you some money. Uh, she said, honestly, we can't. You know, we got to stay here at the bus station. we got a meeting appointment. Oh, okay, fine. Goes outside. Eventually, Autumn goes and finds her. And I realize I'm giving away a lot of the plot here. If you want to go see the movie, just go ahead and watch it. But... You know, they start making out, and it's like, oh, God. You just, again, this is another example of a woman doing something that she doesn't want to do but feels she is compelled to do because she's got to get some money, and she has no other choice. She's got to make out this guy to get some money, and hopefully she'll pay it back. Who knows if she will? All of which is to say, it's important subject matter, and I commend the fact that there's a lot of restraint in the story, but there's not much of a plot. All right, folks? This is a pretty bland movie when it's all said and done. You know, Roger Ebert famously said movies are are a a vehicle for generating empathy. And there's no question that I watch this movie feeling empathy for young women right now who have to deal with these situations. But at the same time, I cannot in good conscience recommend this to people as great entertainment. It it is far from that. And I understand, fine, an abortion drama isn't supposed to be entertaining per se, but it has to be gripping. And it certainly isn't gripping. It's thoughtful and it's thought-provoking. But that does not make it an immersive film experience. And too often, there's just a lot of shots of these two girls wandering and staring and making monosyllabic conversation. Again, I understand that's what 17-year-old girls do. They check their phone. How was the procedure? Eh, it was okay. Does it hurt? Eh, it's a little uncomfortable. You want to go eat? Sure. Like, that's just not the stuff of high cinema in terms of entertainment, is what I'm trying to tell all of you here. Uh, it's well acted and it's well done. But here's the biggest telling point. 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. Okay, you think, oh my God, this movie's going to win Best Picture. You know what the audience reaction is? 20%. So the average moviegoer, all of you listening, if you watch this movie, you're probably going to hate it. 20% is the repositive reviews there. Never, rarely, sometimes, always. It's a great film, but I cannot recommend it to all of you, always. Joe? And did you know, uh, I was reading a review for it, and the counselor that they brought in for that scene was, is a real counselor. Her name's Kelly Chapman. And do you think that that had an impact on that scene further, given that she wasn't an actress, but just someone who actually worked in the profession? I'm glad you told me that, because I, I was thinking that as I was watching, God, she's really, really kind of um, not only honest, but again, sympathetic while still getting the message across. It's not like, you know, somebody's saying, okay, well, I have to ask you a serious question. And there's a lot of preamble to it. The way she did it, as I think the way the doctors do it, I'm going to ask you some questions. Here's how you answer them. Boom, they ask the question. They don't say, hey, honey, uh, this might be a little bit uncomfortable for you, but you know, we'll get through this together. It's okay, sweetie. And if you start crying, they start patting your face. Like, No, they're very calm. And, but in a way, though, very sympathetic. You can tell just by her tone of voice. And especially when automatic, like, why are you asking me this? Like, you know, what does this have to do with anything? I just want to get my abortion. And she's like, I want to make sure you're okay. I thought it was very, very uh, well done. So you're right. I, I thought that, listen, that scene's the best scene of the movie. There's just not enough scenes like that. I mean, you think of abortion dramas. I, mean, I think of that Romanian drama back in 07, four months, three weeks, two days, which I thought was a little bit more compelling. And maybe it's just the fact that the main character is so recessive. 
Like she's just not a charismatic person. Again, I, I understand that leads to the, the verisimilitude of it, that you see young girls like this who are not charming and sweet and affectionate. It's kind of like, um, remember in eighth grade, like I love the lead character because, you know, she's kind of chubby, a little bit silly, and she's not, you know, fetching the way you often see teenage girls portrayed on the screen. So again, I, I credit that for the movie, but I, I just can't imagine telling you, Joe, hey, listen, it's a Saturday afternoon. You got to watch Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. I can't imagine 90 minutes you're going to be thrilled by this experience, as thoughtful as it is. Gotcha. What um what would you say? Because we just watched the movie The Assistant a few weeks ago, and that had a really matter of fact tone to it about how you know the work environment and the film industry that women can go through, especially at a young age. Do you think this movie had the same kind of matter of factness to it? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I enjoyed The Assistant more because I. I just, for some reason, found it hit a little bit harder. But you're right. This, this, they actually, you're right, belong in a companion piece. If you want to do a twin bill about how women are getting screwed in the world and have been for years, you could just watch The Assistant and never, rarely, sometimes, always, and just be depressed about the fact there's such rampant sexism in this country. How's that for a double bill? Go ahead. And, you want to depress yourself and look at how bad the world is these days? Let me recommend you that. The Assistant and never, rarely, sometimes, always. Uh, let's move on. Guess who's coming to dinner? How about this farce? Joanne Drayton, played by Catherine Houghton, free-thinking white woman, and a black doctor. John Prentice, played by Sidney Poitier. They're engaged. They travel to San Francisco to meet their parents. Their parents have no idea what is going on. And so first they go to her parents' house, and they meet Christina. Ah, it's Catherine Hepburn. That's right. She's a wealthy liberal. Must confront the latent racism of her family. It's nice to see you, sweetheart. And what are you doing here? So all of a sudden she meets, maybe it's a little more like Kate Blanchett in The Aviator. Won an Oscar for a performance of Hepburn. Portia is always is smooth and magnetic, and he realizes this is probably a bad idea. Are you sure your parents are okay with the fact that I'm black and you're white, and it's 1967? And she says, oh, you don't understand. My parents are huge liberals. They're going to love you. They go to the house, and right away, predictably, Catherine Hepburn is taken aback. Like, oh, I didn't realize your man is black, and where is this going? And then Spencer Tracy comes home, and he always oh, got a golf tournament to go to, and he's a big-time uh, publishing magnet. He doesn't have time for a quick conversation. Just want to say hello. Oh, I met this guy at the airport. Oh, great. How you doing, buddy? Nice to meet you. Oh, you're a doctor? Oh, cool. Great. Uh, by the way, he's actually, uh, we're about to get married. Uh, I beg your pardon. What? So it sounds very sitcom-y, and it is. But then the story goes a little deeper because Poitier throws out, which is a very contrived conceit of the movie. He pulls aside the dad and says, listen, I can tell that you're taken aback by this and kind of shocked. But here's the deal. I'm not going to marry your daughter unless you tell me tonight you have no issues. And we're only going to be here for the next three or four hours because we're flying tonight to Europe to get married. Like, it's just a preposterous situation. Like, why would he put this much heat on the guy? But that's the way he's doing it. He's like, you know what? We're going to Europe tonight, and your daughter has no idea. But I have, I'm telling you right now, you have any issues, you tell me, and I won't marry her because I don't want to have a situation where you guys don't approve. And Spencer Tracy's like, well, that's rather magnanimous of you, but you're also just throwing it right in my face. You're giving me literally three hours to make a decision. I had no idea she's dating anybody. Now all of a sudden she's getting married and you're black. Like, wait, hang on a second. This is, this is what I got? Yeah, you got three hours. Okay. But hey, go with it. Uh, now he's talking to her, his parents, and she casually invites his parents to come to dinner as well. And of course, his parents have no idea she's white. So then they go to the airport <laughs> to meet them. Pretty funny scene, just the look on the dad's face, just how taken aback he is at this white woman who has uh, captured his son's heart. Uh, they then go to, uh, to dinner, obviously, at the house. They start talking a little bit. The dads are clearly not in favor of this, and they kind of try to come to a settlement and say, okay, let's talk some sense here in the Sydney Poitier. Um, 
as I said, the movie's kind of sitcom but I think it's very brave for its time. And with race being such a big issue right now, we all know what's happening in America, Black Lives Matter, et cetera. It is interesting to think about 1967 when interracial marriage was particularly taboo. And as I said off the top, I'm sure in certain parts of the country, it's still not that widely accepted. Um, you know, I'm not going to be Pollyanna about that, but certainly at that time, it really was tough coming out of the civil rights movement. So no one's ever actually saying, hey, listen, we can't do this because of A, B, and C. They just keep saying, listen, it's going to be tough for you. And everyone knows what that means, the inherent racism you're going to face, the backlash from people, talking from neighbors, disapproval from racist people, et cetera. Um, and I think the final 20 minutes is probably the worst part of the movie because then you get a bunch of speeches. You get a Catherine Hepburn giving a speech. You got Poitier giving a speech to his dad. You got Spencer Tracy giving the final speech. I think of the entire cast, Poitier and Tracy are the best reasons to watch. Hepburn, who's arguably the greatest actress of all time, four Oscars, 12 nominations, is very good. But Tracy gets to have the big speech at the end because, of course, you know, you always have to change somebody, right? Who's the racist? Not even the racist. Sorry, that's harsh. He's, he's a liberal. He's just not comfortable with this whole idea of his daughter marrying a black man. Who is the one who has to undergo the most change? And Tracy's character is that. Hepburn warms up quickly, sees how, you know, happy her daughter is. Poitier is trying to convince his father that, you know, he's not just some kid anymore. The one interesting character, by the way, is the black maid in the, in the show, Tilly, Isabel Sanford. She ends up giving it to Poitier. Like, what are you doing, boy? Drops a couple of N-words on him. I'm like, whoa, did not see that coming. She's a volcano saying, do not mistreat this girl. She's like a daughter to me. I know people like you. I know what guys that you are like just showing up trying to take this white woman. I'm like, whoa, that, that, that actually has a lot of heat on it. I was really impressed with that scene. It's directed by Stanley Craig. And it's very important, as I said, not only when you look at race in America, but race in Hollywood. Um, and so it came at that touchstone point. I mean, this is right around the time of In the Heat of the Night and The Graduate and stuff like that. So listen, uh, off the top, I didn't give my rating. Never, rarely, sometimes, always a given two Maple Leafs. I'll give Guess Who's Coming to Dinner with three Maple Leafs because of the superb cast. Yes, it's contrived in a little sitcom, but it did make me think about what life was like back then and how different it must have been. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times. It would be easy to tear the plot to shreds and catch Kramer in the art of copping out, but why? On its own terms, this film was a joy to see. An evening of superb entertainment and Bosley Crowther of the New York Times examines its subject matter with perception, depth, insight, humor, and feeling. Joe, guess who's coming to dinner? And I haven't seen this movie in years, but one thing that kind of stood out to me that I remember, and let me know how you feel about this scene, but it, I thought it was just kind of weird that... Um, uh, Miss Houghton uh, insisted that Sidney Poitier's parents came to dinner as well. And then the dad, I remember, kind of confronted Sidney Poitier about it, and he threatened to disown him, essentially. Did that take away from the plot at all for you? or Because like, I felt like that was kind of a contrast between like how he was dealing with white family, then his old family comes and he's like, well, you guys either get on board or get out, you know? Yeah, I thought it was a little bit forced. I mean, that character is particularly recalcitrant. The way he tries to say, listen, I was a postman. I suffered for you. I, I, I did all these sacrifices for you. You owe me this. You're not going to marry this girl. Although, you know what? Hey, maybe that's the way parents thought back in the 60s. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that is the way somebody would think if they just grinded all day and all of a sudden they're like, wait, you're going to do this? Like, you, you do not have my approval. So, again, I think it's unfair for me to, to challenge that because maybe that was at that time. But I could see if that kind of irked you. Gotcha, gotcha. I think it's time for a rewatch then in the, uh, through 2020's lens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, a couple items of news before we get to Daphne Maxwell Reed. Theaters are going dark. That's right. 2020 would have been a big year for movies, but it just keeps happening. No Time to Die, which was the 007 movie. Uh, originally said released in April of 2020. New premiere date set for November 2020. Now they're saying it's not going to hit theaters until April 2021. Also, very sad news for Regal Cinema locations in the U.S., uh, Cinderella revealing it's closing all of them. So that's 543 venues across the United States could close 
this week. Regal Cinemas is the second largest domestic movie theater chain in the U.S. Sources telling Variety the theaters could remain shuttered until 2021. Approximately 5,500 jobs are on the line due to the closures. Uh, by the way, No Time to Die is not the first 2020 Temple released to encounter repeated delays. Earlier this year, Wonder Woman 1984 delayed multiple times. So uh, it's now going to be Christmas Day, they're saying. Went from June 5th to October 2nd to Christmas Day. That's Wonder Woman 1984. And once again, No Time to Die, the new Bond film, is now getting pushed to April of 2021. And to Regal Cinemas and all, I mean, that's just my heart goes out to it, man. I love movies. I love going to the movie theaters. And I, I feel sorry for everybody losing their jobs with that. Hopefully, they can bounce back as soon as possible. And that's why many famous directors, including one of my favorites, the favorite, Martin Scorsese, along with James Cameron and Clint Eastwood, calling on Congress to aid movie theaters in the United States amid the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. And letter to Washington leaders, the three Oscar-winning directors were joined by dozens of other famous filmmakers, Judd Apatow, Greta Gerwig, Christopher Nolan, Jordan Peele, Wes Anderson, Ung Lee, and a plea to seek help. Current crisis has dealt a horrific shock to cinemas, a group that says without funds, theaters may not survive without the pandemic. May not survive because of the pandemic, excuse me. 70 directors and producers, along with the National Association of Theater Owners, the Directors Guild of America, and the Motion Picture Association signed that letter. So hopefully Congress can do the right thing. After the break, and Viv, Daphne Maxwell-Reed, here to talk about the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air's 30th anniversary reunion, stories about Will Smith, and Scott Rogowski is back for Ragstime, plus our picks for the Mount Rushmore of Buddy Road Trip Movies. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Well, everyone remembers Daphne Maxwell-Reed, an iconic TV mom of the 1990s, three seasons as Aunt Vivian on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air reunion special airing on HBO Max Thanksgiving weekend. Daphne Maxwell-Reed is our special guest today on Cinefile. She also stars in The Business of Christmas, which comes out on Netflix on December 1st. Thank you so much for the time today, Daphne. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. We've got a lot to get to here, not only with your career, your acting, but where we are in America right now. But let's dive in with the Fresh Prince stuff, because obviously people see Aunt Viv, they go, of course, Fresh Prince, uh, an iconic character, a memorable show. And like I said, the, the reunion special is going to air on HBO Max Thanksgiving week. I don't know the exact time yet. Take us through that entire process. What was it like when you first got the role? Well, I uh, got an email that asked if I would want to participate in a reunion of the cast, and there was no hesitation in saying, of course. And uh, they flew us out for a week. We had a lovely stay in various Los Angeles hotels where they wanted us to keep, uh, to stay away from each other so that when we greeted each other on set, it would be fresh. <laughs> and we had a fabulous reunion. We spent a day remembering and uh, looking forward to and hearing things that we had never heard before and seeing things we had never seen before. So it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful show. And then the next day we did a lot of, um, what you call this, uh, social media things, all sorts of little TikToks and 
photographs and wonderful stuff that you'll probably be seeing near the uh, airing date. Well, that's great news. I mean, I'm locked into Twitter and Instagram. I still have to work on my TikTok game. We'll get to that another time. But um, as far as, listen, it's hard to keep up with people. I couldn't even imagine their day-to-day, week-to-week, but years later. Um, what was the, the, the fondest remembrances you all had together as a crew when you were all together? Was it telling stories about what's gone on the last few decades or uh, certain memories from the show? What was it like when you guys were kind of just hanging out, catching up? Well, it, it happens that we really are quite the family, and we have been keeping up with each other over the years with the marriages and the births and the sad deaths. And um, so we were all in touch with each other for years before this, but it is always a joy for all of us to be in the same place at the same time. You know, this show was such a juggernaut in the 1990s, and it was obviously a show that I, like many of my friends, we all watched, we all devoured it. Um, Did you have any sense, either at the time the show was how popular it was, or the fact it would be have such an enduring legacy all these years later? Well, it was always a very well-written show, and besides the charisma and the exuberance that Will brought to the part of The Fresh Prince. The cast was solid. It was really familial. And they were all very good actors in their own right. And it was a beautiful combination of timing because we were allowed to do things at that point that showed the culture of Black America at that time, but it also was a time that those things were kind of, I guess, common to many different cultures. We dealt with a lot of things in that show that many people uh, were exposed to and could kind of sympathize with. We had a lot of fun, and we gave honest portrayals of what these characters would be like. And I think that honesty is what has kept it alive for so many years. And we're on our third generation of viewers, which is really cool. Uh, you're absolutely right about the fact that there was humor, but also drama and poignance, and it was very much a show of its time, and it also a show that's timeless. Uh, what was it like working with Will Smith? I've heard nothing but great things as far as the way he treats cast members and crew and such. Very generous guy. What was it like for you specifically? My first day at work, and you know I'm the uh, second Aunt Viv, so I was moving into an environment that had been vibrant for three years before me. And the first day I arrived on set in my dressing room were dozens and dozens of red roses welcoming me there. And I got hugs and and I got respect for the work that I had done previously, and I was just embraced very, very oh, warmly by everybody. Will is a remarkable human being. Besides the fact that he's very talented, he's very, very smart, and he's a great businessman, and he has great instincts. And those instincts have taken him to the moon and back. I mean, he, I'm just really proud of him, as any mother would be. <laughs> That's very sweet. I could tell the, the genuine passion the way you're talking about him. It. it is very, very sweet to hear. Once again, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air reunion special airing on HBO Max Thanksgiving weekend. 
Let's turn our attention, Daphne, just to your career, because you're a pioneer in many, many ways. Decades ago, you became the first African-American homecoming queen at Northwestern University, one of the first African-American women to appear on the cover of Glamour magazine. Uh, you have many diverse interests, but, but also the fact that you're a spokesperson for Virginia State University, a historically black college slash university doing outreach, public relations, speaking engagements, trying to help people and students of color and talk about the importance of education. How have you found that uh, so gratifying over the years? I was given many gifts when I was born, and it is incumbent upon me to honor those gifts. And giving back is one of the gifts that I really enjoy doing. I have been very, very blessed in my career and my life and my family. And whatever I, whenever I get a chance to give back to something I truly believe in, I try to do that. Uh, besides Virginia State University and their wonderful, wonderful programs there that assist so many people, I am a member of an international board called Child Fund International, and we help children all over the world and families about nutrition and all sorts of wonderful things. And I'm also on the boards of arts groups because I love to help budding artists get going or keep going. And it's a board called Culture Works in Virginia. I've I've had many, many opportunities to just explore all the different facets of the arts that I love and am able to share with other people in either helping them or doing them myself. Yeah, it's not just acting. You're a lifelong shutterbug, an amateur photographer, five books, five annual calendars already published, uh, art photography featuring doors and doorways around the world, including Cuba, Venice, France, China, Germany, and Belgium. Tell me about the photography. That seems to be a fascinating little side passion of yours. Oh, it was. It's a great journey. I love it. I have been taking pictures uh, all my life. My father was an amateur photographer, so I've had a camera since I was about six years old. And there are two things that I have in my life that I am never without, and that is a camera and a sewing machine. But in photography, I just started a journey in when I turned 60. I decided I wanted to be a photographic artist, and I went about figuring out what that meant and what it took to be one. And I started a fabulous journey of, well, I had to curate the pictures that I had already taken around the world and then plan other trips around the world and decide what I'm going to do with these wonderful pictures. Besides just hanging them on the wall, I decided to make note cards. And then I decided, well, I keep telling these stories about where I was when I took these pictures. Let's put it in a book. So I did the first book and took it to a publisher who said, uh, we can't sell this, but uh, if I were you, I would do this, 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 and this. I took his notes, I reformatted the book, and it has been selling very well for the past eight years. And then I decided, okay, I'll become a publisher. So I published my four books, and then I published a cookbook that I had sitting on my computer for years. And I'm just taking journeys. And I'm up to about my ninth calendar now. I just got this year's out for 2021. And for the first year, this one does not have doors on it. It has 
what I call, mm, what did I call them? Details. And they're mostly very detailed, close pictures of flowers that I've taken from around the world. So I just enjoy the journey of photographing and sharing that with other people and getting people to look at the details in their lives, which is what makes your life very rich. No question about it. You mentioned the, uh, the clothing line, Daphne's style, because like you said, wherever you go, you have a sewing machine with you. You've been a, a seamstress much of your life. And the cookbook is called Grace, and so- Grace Plus Soul and Mother Wit. Some of your favorite recipes. What I wonder with a yes. cookbook, what is like your favorite meal? I'm not going to say your death row meal because it's a little morbid. But like what's your favorite meal to cook or to eat? My favorite meal to prepare is Thanksgiving dinner with all the sides because I just love the process of turkey and dressing and all the sides that go with it. And then the pleasure of sitting around a table with friends and devouring that said turkey. <laughs> so... But otherwise, I I do a lot of things like experimental cooking that you won't find in this cookbook. But uh, I just explore with food. Said, well, this smells like it would sound good with some of this. So I put those two together, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. But I think cooking is very, very expressive and very relaxing. <laughs> I'm sure your uh, success rate is higher, higher than m- many of us. Um, I want to circle back to the point <laughs> about uh, race in America now, like being an actress, being a person of color, where we are right now. I mean, it's it gets awfully tough down to sometimes you look at the headlines, you see what's happening. And I'm not just talking about you know law enforcement and what's happened with young African-American males, but just in general, just the tenor of this country, the amount of rage, the amount of vitriol. What's it been like for you as an actress, a proud person of color, seeing where we are now? Do you still maintain optimism do, or do you get frustrated by where we are? I get frustrated by the system because we've been through this. We've All of this uh, police brutality has been happening for 400 years, so that's nothing new. It's just that we have cameras now on our phones, so everybody gets to see it. This is life of being black in America. You have to deal with the basic fact that there's a history of animosity between the white race and the black race, and it's from degradation. It's from years and years of of accumulated degradation, but on the other hand, it's from 400 years of survival. So we have a strength of survival that overcomes all of this stuff. We just need to bring the systems up to where they need to be so that we are not treated differently than the law is prescribed to be. What do you make of, for actors now, is it harder for people of color? Is it easier with more opportunities? I mean, the Academy Awards is now looking at new measures to try to bring in more diversity. We all know what the Oscars so white, uh, how frustrating that was. What do you think about Hollywood's response to the issue of racial inequality? I think it's late. I think it's um, half-assed, as they say. Um, the systems that create this situation have not changed. Um, They are dealing with the guilt and the mirror being held up to them. So they're reacting rather than being proactive and knowing that when you have people of various backgrounds, it makes whatever you're doing richer and it gives opportunities to create wealth 
to many more communities than just one. And once they get that as a standard, they won't have to make exceptional changes. It will be par for the course, and it will be fully fully encompassing of everything that's available uh, race-wise. That's well said, and we can only hope. Uh, let's close by talking about The Business of Christmas, airing on Netflix December 1st in an effort to save the family store and home. The Franklin children come back home to help their parents save the family store and family home. They rediscover the core values of love, family, and the holiday spirit. This sounds like a, a wonderful movie to watch over the holidays, right? It was a wonderful movie to shoot, too. Great cast and a well-told well story. I mean, the script was wonderful. And we had a great time shooting it, so I hope in the editing we didn't get messed up. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. I'm anxious to see it. But I was very, very pleased with uh, the performances that, that I was a part of and um, the whole look of it I was really pleased with. Well, we were pleased to have you here on Cinephile. Daphne Maxwell-Reed, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air reunion special airing on HBO Max Thanksgiving weekend. The Business of Christmas comes out on Netflix December 1st. The Cookbook, Grace Plus Soul and Mother Wit, and also Daphne Style, The Clothing Line. I don't know how you do it, but uh, you do a phenomenal job balancing all those different hats. And really appreciate your generosity today, Daphne. All the best. Thank you, and keep up with me at DaphneMaxwellReed.com. I've got lots of things going on. Get ready, guys and gals. It's time for Ragtime with Scott Rogowski. Well, listen, this is big news. As I've reported uh, in the last couple of weeks here in Cinefall, we had a contract dispute with Rogowski, and thankfully it's been settled. I'm just going to continue to not pay him a dime for this, and he's going to give you a great entertainment. Rags, welcome back, my man. Aha! Alejandro Burke. <laughs> um, what are you going to to? I know you've been watching a lot of baseball. You watching any movies? I've been watching baseball. I haven't been watching movies, to be honest. I haven't been watching much of anything. I've been incredibly busy trying to get my own stuff going. I'm working on my own podcast over here. I'm working on bigger things. But uh, I had my girlfriend visiting, and that's really the reason why I had to go on hiatus from the podcast because, you know, I had to devote myself to being a full-time lover when she's in town. But I love the fact that when you told us last time, when you you Googled AV, Michigan Avenue came up. Like, I listened back to that segment, and I was agreeing with your point. There's going to be one guy in the world. You ask him, what's your favorite movie? Michigan Avenue. Like, some pompous ass is walking around going, oh, Michigan (laughs) Avenue. This six minutes, this is incredible. These two women on the cover. (laughs) It's ridiculous. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm putting all that in my rear view at this point. I'm I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I've been thinking a lot about the medium that we enjoy our content on these days. You know, I don't know about you, but it, it, your kids, Adnan, your kids are of the younger generation. Are they are they watching TV with you? Do they even watch TV at all? Uh, we try to limit screen time, but if they do, it's stuff that you, you, you wouldn't know. Nick Jr. shows, Paw Patrol, and you know Ninja Turtles, stuff like that. You, you're aware of these shows, but you're not watching. Right, right. But, but my point is, like, do, they, do they have a phone yet? Are they of age? No with, phones, though. No phone. No, okay, all right. So they're almost too young. But I'm talking about the late teenagers, 20-year-olds today. You know, no one's watching TV anymore. That's that's the thing. Like, my girlfriend's a little younger. I mean, she, she's, she reads at a fourth grade level, but she's... <laughs> 
she's <laughs> she's she's gonna kill me for that joke. She's in her twenties, but she doesn't watch TV. And you know, I, I'm looking to the future. I want to be part of the next wave. So I'm developing the next big thing that's for the phone. I'm just gonna leave it at that. That's my tease. It's an exclusive tease for your listeners here on Cinephile. Cinephile. All right, so Reg, specifically you're going to do stuff, like you said, for the phone. That makes sense. Like your girlfriend's not sitting there going, hey, I wonder what David Muir is going to tell us in the evening news. <laughs> right. They don't watch the evening news. You know, my, I'm living with my parents right now, okay? I'm, I boomeranged successfully. I'm back at the old homestead. And they're in their 70s. Every room in the house has a TV on, no matter whether they're in the room or not. Every TV is on in the house. And that's just the way this generation operates. TV is their lifeblood, their lifeline. So I'm seeing the future and I'm seeing like in 20 years, the kids who are 20 today, when they're your age, Adnan, when they've got kids, they're not going to, they're not, there won't be any TVs on in the house. There just, there just won't be because everyone's on their phone. And it's not as if they're going to hit 40 and go, yeah, I'm going to start watching the evening news. No, it's not going to happen. It's <laughs> over. TV's dead. <laughs> so wait, the revolution will not be televised. That's what you're it telling us. It will not us. be televised. I mean, in a sense, it's television, but it's just on your phone. It's, it's, it's the broadcast. It's the medium that's changing. So, uh, you know, I'm working on a mobile broadcast network. Oh, I might have said too much. I might have said too much. No, listen, listen, no but that's a good tease. Listen, I'll be honest with you. People have heard you in the podcast. They love hearing me. They do ask me. They go, hey, what's Rick Askey up to aside from entertaining you for 15 minutes on Cinephone? I said, well, he's got some stuff in the, in the kitchen. He's got some stuff yeah. he's cooking on. So that's, that is enough of a tease there. If you're looking for Scott Rogowski in some sort of multimedia format, you're going to get it sooner rather than later. Is that fair? And I'll say this. And I'll say this. If, you ha- if there's anyone listening who is really good at coding, software development, engineers, I'm going to start hiring. Yeah. In the middle of a pandemic with the recession and the downturn that's happening, I am hiring. So hit me up. Uh, I, I need very smart, talented people. Actually, also, if you have ideas for shows, hit me up. But more so, I need the engineering talent at this point. <laughs> Creativity would be great, but honestly, technical expertise is yeah, of a much higher product-minded <laughs> engineers would be even better if you can do both. But uh, but getting back to my the, the crux of this, as as I know you have a hard out, and I just want to I want to talk about what I have been watching with my girlfriend. We started watching Alan Partridge. Oh, okay. Knowing me, knowing you. Do you know Alan Partridge? I, I've heard of Alan Partridge. I've never actually seen Alan Partridge. Well, have you heard of Steve Coogan? Yes, I know Steve Coogan is very funny. He does a great Michael Caine impression. Right, and The Trip, which are some of the best movies. I love the Trip series, Trip to Italy, Trip to Spain, Trip to Greece. But Steve Coogan, it plays Alan Partridge. He, he created this character in the early 90s. I mean, Steve Coogan's like 54 now, but actually he's turning 55 next week. Happy birthday. He is probably top five funniest people on the planet. The, 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 the physical comedy, the faces, the, the verbal dexterity, the wit, the impressions. I mean, this guy is a five-tool comedy talent, and he started, you know, working with Armando Iannucci, who we know now in the states as as creator of Veep and the you know Emmy winner with Veep. But Armando Iannucci has been doing comedy for decades in the UK. Shows called On the Hour, The Day Today, and these this is where the Alan Partridge character was developed, kind of a spoof of you know a, a special a, a consumer interest uh, presenters, you know, really just pompous inept, shameless, shamelessly self-promoting, uh, you, you know, just total weirdos. <laughs> I mean, this guy, at, at every night now, before we go to bed, uh, Laura and I, we kind of Zoom together an episode. It's on HBO Max, all the Alan Partridge series, and there are about like six of them now, going back to the 90s up until, 
I think just in 2019, he had a special uh, on, on the BBC and they're all on HBO Max. And it is the funniest comedy you'll ever watch, man. I mean, you know, people like David Brent, the original office of Gervais. He's better than David Brent. I'm telling you, it's it, it's like it's beyond. It's like the, it's like that kind of cringe comedy, but it goes beyond. And and if you like Veep, I mean, if you only know Ianucci from Veep, then get into his earlier stuff because it's that same kind of you know that character of Lu, uh, Julie Louis Dreyfus. Imagine that character not in the not confined you know to the the White House, so you can be even more insane and more obnoxious uh, as a local radio host that's who's that's who alan partridge is he plays this like radio host with this you know fifth best slot on the station you know like midnight to 4 a.m but he thinks he's the cock of the rock uh, <laughs> it, it's it's uh, i mean do yourself a favor they're, they're you know the way the bbc works is like they have i think six or eight episode seasons so they're very short seasons and then they run you know there'll be years between the seasons so they, they do it right. They give you just enough and they leave you wanting more. And I recommend watching every episode of the Alan Partridge series. See, that's Scott Rogowski here in Rags Time. He does a phenomenal job and he always leaves us wanting more. He had me a cringe comedy. I mean, I think of Ricky Gervais in The Office. I mean, obviously, you know how much I love the Larry Sanders show. You and I both adore Gary oh, yeah. Shandling. That's, that's cringe comedy at its best. So if that's what Alan Partridge is, sign me up and sign me up for more Scott Rogowski. Find him on Twitter and Instagram, ask Scott Rogowski. It's great to have you back, man. I'm glad we solved this uh, contract dispute and uh, we look forward to much in the future. I'm back on the train, back in the saddle. Back of the net! Alejandro Kirk. Alejandro Verk. <laughs> Mount Rushmore. All right, time now for the Mount Rushmore Buddy Road Trip Movies. This is kind of a funny topic because uh, off the top, obviously, it was a very serious topic um, in terms of Buddy Road Trip Movies, with never, rare, uh, never rarely, sometimes, always. So, listen, I think Swingers is an all-time classic. Rogowski obviously would appreciate that. I think it's a great Buddy Road Trip movie. Vegas, baby, Vegas! Uh, I think Midnight Run is obviously tremendous. Robert De Niro, Charles Grodin, really when Bob started to show his comedic chops. Dennis Farina. Is this more on number one? Put more on number two on the phone. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is one of my favorite comedies of all time. Might actually be my favorite comedy of all time. Those aren't pillows. They're remaking it, by the way, with uh, Will Smith and Kevin Hart. I mean, what are we doing? And lastly, I'm going to go with Sideways. Again, a great film. Paul Giamatti, a very depressed wannabe writer, hanging out with his old college buddy, Thomas Hayden Church, about to get married. They go out to the vineyards in California and encounter Sandra Oh and a lot of malfeasance. I know it's very male-heavy, but Swingers, listen, Favreau and Vaughn, you can't beat that. Midnight Run, as I mentioned, De Niro comedy. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and Sideways is my picks. By the way, honorable mention going to, I kind of wanted to get the Motorcycle Diaries in, but I feel like Joe might go in that direction. But honorable mention to The Searchers, a great film starring John Wayne, a huge influence on Scorsese, and Taxi Driver. How about for you, Joe? Mount Rushmore, a buddy road trip movies. All right, so I'm going to back you up on Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. So good. The dynamic duo of uh, Steve Martin and John Candy can't be beat. I'm also going to go with Thelma and Louise. Iconic movie, iconic performances, iconic scenes. I will go with Dumb and Dumber because I love, love, love uh, Jim Carrey so much and uh, Jeff Daniels as well. 
And then it's it's tough, but I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with Blues Brothers. I'm gonna go with Blues Brothers, a movie that I enjoy more and more the older I get. But you're right, The Searchers, John Wayne at his peak, such an incredible movie. So many directors attribute that movie as their favorite westerns of all time. Can't go wrong with any of them. Surprised you did not go with Motorcycle Diaries. Okay, but I like your list, Joe. I mean, Dumb and Dumber, that, that seems like a glaring omission by me, but I like the fact you got it in there. Blues Brothers, again, definitely iconic. And Thelma and Louise. I mean, that final scene where they go over the cliff, I mean, that's fantastic. Really is a great female empowerment drama and wildly entertaining. Gina Davis, Susan Sarandon, great performances. Uh, honorable mention to Green Book. How about that? One best picture. Let's just get it in there. Viggo Mortensen and my main man, Mahershala Ali. Thank you, as always, to my main man, Scott Rogowski and Joseph Engelbrecht doing a fantastic job here on Cinephile. Thank you so much to our special guest, Daphne Maxwell-Reed. And most of all, thank you to all of you for supporting Cinephile. Please do continue to support us. You can tweet me, CinephilePod, or add me in Esfert. Go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review. I'm sorry to all those employed by Regal Cinemas. Hopefully, you'll bounce back, find another gig. Let's support movies. Let's support cinema as best as we can. Coming up next week, I'll review Ethan Hawke in The Good Lord Bird on Showtime. And maybe, as Joe mentioned, Jeff Daniels, I'll get a chance to watch The Comey Rule. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.